1: I'm Ann Lester, and this is the Earn and Invest Podcast.
0: I have made some of the most basic financial mistakes. I have bought high and sold low, purchased a whole life insurance policy in my 20s from a family member, blindly invested in individual stocks, and paid an expensive price for subpar mutual fund managers. I have lost gobs and gobs of money on my path to financial independence, yet... Yet I dare say that none of it has truly slowed me down. It was all survivable. The trick is simple, and I stumbled upon it without even realizing. Simply put, I started early and I kept on investing. In fact, it can be argued that what you do in your early years can set the tone for your finances for the rest of your life. Today, we talk about the biggest financial risks of your 20s and 30s with author and Lester. If you are in the midst of these important years, listen up. If not, think how you will advise your family and friends. Anne Lester is on a mission to help Americans of all walks of life to achieve a safe and secure retirement. Most recently, she spent 15 years as head of retirement solutions for J.P. Morgan Asset Management. She is a contributor for CNBC, Bloomberg TV, The Wall Street Journal, and The New York Times. Her forthcoming book, Your Best Financial Life, Save Smart Now for the Future You Want, will be published by William Morrow in March. Ann Lester, welcome to Earn and Invest. Let me paint the picture. By the age of 26, you had both gone to Princeton and Johns Hopkins, won a Fulbright scholarship to study in Japan, and had just wrapped up an internship with Chase Bank. And yet you found yourself broke and unable to pay for a bag on an airplane. What the heck happened?
1: Yeah, you know, it's. I'd like to say it was the only time I found myself like that in my 20s and maybe even early 30s. And sadly, you know, it wasn't true. I spend money. I like to spend. And, you know, I think growing up, you know, it's all my mom's fault, right? As I am the mother of two kids, right, so I can say that. But I, I didn't learn how to budget. I didn't even understand what budgeting was, and the the way my parents, you know, my parents were both grew up uh, during the Depression. They were sort of the silent generation, right? They were born in the in the early '30s, and they didn't spend money because there was no money to spend. So they never thought about budgeting. It just like and and i think you know what happened to me was on the one hand growing up in a fairly affluent you know my dad was a college professor there was you know enough money for for you know i never felt like there was any financial stress in our lives but the way decisions were made was is this an important thing is it a worthy purchase is it a good purchase then sure there's the money for it i didn't have an allowance there was always enough money if i wanted to go out with my friends and if my parents thought it was a silly thing I was doing, they wouldn't give me the money. So I didn't I didn't learn to make financial decisions based on like a finite budget. It was like a values-based decision-making process. And that's all well and good if there's enough money. But if there's not enough money, it doesn't work very well. And so I found myself, you know, making decisions based on, is this a good idea? Is this a good purchase? And it, you know, it it doesn't work. My first job I was earning, you know, I was a entry level employee on Capitol Hill and you don't earn very much money. And I just I just didn't know how to make it work.
0: I think it's an important point. I think we're going to come back to this over and over again in this discussion. Most of us have been led to believe that you have to be perfect to get money right. But you're a self-admitted spender. This episode with not being able to pay for a bag was one thing, but spending was a real hill for you to climb. It it still is.
1: I'll be totally honest. Like, I just I just I like to spend. And, you know, one of the central tenets of the book is really like learn, understand yourself, accept yourself yourself. You know, it doesn't mean you're bad. I'm not a bad person because money burns a hole in my pocket. Like literally when somebody gives me some money, I go, oh, goody, what can I do with it, right? I have learned over the decades to set up guardrails around myself so that I don't do things I know I will regret later. But it took me, you know, 10, 10 plus years to figure out how to do that successfully. And and that's, that's it's, you know... I, I think a lot of of the way we are around money is a combination of nurture and nature, right? So the nurture is what what experiences did you have growing up? What lessons were you taught, good or bad? And I, maybe I shouldn't even say good or bad, just what experience did you learn? Were they about spending? Were they about investing? Were they about it always works out in the end, you know? And also there's a bit of nature in there, which is what is your behavioral wiring? People do have tendencies towards spending and saving towards risk aversion and loss aversion that are hardwired into their brains. And so that combination of those two things really kind of starts determining how you react in financial situations. And if any of those situations, issues were traumatic at all, that just puts a whole other layer of emotion into the whole situation, right? So understanding that about yourself, A, lets you accept it. B, lets you let go of some of the shame and the blame that I think I I certainly felt about myself financially. And then you can move forward.
0: You've just kind of described your history. You talked about your parents and what they modeled for you. How did this lead to a career in finance And I think we all have this mistaken belief that if you're in finance personally, you must be good at your own personal finances. Yeah, they're really different things, aren't they? Uh, So tell me about that. Tell me about how you landed in this field and why it didn't automatically make you an expert in managing your own stuff. Well, it's it's
1: kind of a a silly story, but when I was in high school, my dad got an executive MBA and my dad was kind of a cerebral, is a cerebral guy, English linguist, right, and you know, teenage daughters and fathers, like, how do we reestablish this relationship now that, you know, he's not giving me piggyback rides anymore. And we ended up talking a lot about what he was learning in his MBA class and some just basic economics and foreign exchange. And he used to travel a lot. And I remember going through all the piles of what I'd call airplane you know, airport books that he'd have around the house with the glossy, shiny covers, thrillers and mysteries. And there was one book called The Silver Bears by Paul Erdman, who wrote financial thrillers. And Mm. I read that book, it came out in the 70s. And I read it when I was, I don't know, 14 or 15 or 16. And I just remember getting hooked on the glamour of international finance from reading this novel. And I thought, my gosh, that sounds so cool. And the notion of exchange rates and money moving and it driving economies. And, you know, it just was so interesting to me. So I just got hooked on it. And that's when I decided I wanted to be an international financier.
0: So we're going to talk about the five biggest financial risks of your 20s and 30s. But before we do, there's a lot in your book that's important. And just because this is an interview and we don't have unlimited amount of time, we're not going to cover everything But you mentioned this idea of guardrails, right? A lot of us do want to spend. We do want to be frivolous with our money. And the way you've managed it personally is you've gotten really good at setting up these guardrails. You use an acronym STASH to describe your philosophy for retirement saving and budgeting, etc. Like I said, we're not going to spend the whole time talking about this. But at least describe what that acronym is and how it kind of provided some guardrails for you.
1: Yeah, so so STASH is... Really, the five things that I think you have to, if, you, if you're if you trying to get your arms around your own financial situation, right, stash is a great way to think about it. Number one is emergency savings. So you, you need to have emergency savings because that will keep you out of future trouble. So the S is savings. T is tax-aware and tax-advantaged investing. So that's using your 401k if you've got one or your 403b plan or an IRA to make sure your money is growing as efficiently as possible. The A is assess your budget and make sure that you're managing the conflicting demands on your paycheck because, of course, nobody ever, I mean, maybe somebody does, I don't know who they are, uh, feels like there's enough. So how do you juggle emergency savings, with your tax-deferred savings, with paying down your student debt versus a car payment versus, you know, how do you navigate that sort of hierarchy of financial obligations? The fourth one, we're back at S again, is stay the course. How do you actually get your retirement savings contributions high enough so that you will be able to retire and have choices when you retire at the age you're hoping to do that at? So how do you get those savings rates up, stay the course, and then last is H, is have fun. How do you build your savings for all the other things you want to do, like take a vacation, buy a house, have a child, right? How do you think about investing so that your money grows with the appropriate level of risk for those big life goals, and frankly, enjoying some of it?
0: Yeah. I feel like we sometimes forget the age part, at least when we get deep into the personal finance advice.
1: Yeah. And, and I mean, I'm a spender, right? So this is what I would say, but like, I think money is useful and, you know, having it hoarded away in, you know, if you're a dragon sitting on a pile of gold, that's not doing anybody any good, right? So if you're hoarding your money and you're not, you don't have a plan for it and it's not giving you utility, right? Why are you bothering? Why are you sacrificing to have this pile of money?
0: So we're going to move on to the five biggest financial risks of your 20s and 30s, and maybe we'll stick with the T of stash. And that brings us to risk one, not contributing to your 401k or IRA. These are the tax deferred savings that a lot of people have available to them either through their employer or can set up for themselves. First and foremost, how do we balance that off with paying off debt? Because I know, you know, I went to medical school, right? So I'm a physician and a lot of people come out of medical school with hundreds of thousands of dollars of debt and they are chomping at the bit if they can to pay that debt off. How do we balance that with things like tax deferred savings?
1: So they're both important. I think especially if you've got access to a 401k plan or an employer who's going to match your what you contribute to your own retirement right that is free money and that is doubling the return of any money you put away so you know objective number 1 is get the free money because it's free so Always. <laughs> typically typically employers will match the very common formula is they'll match 50% on the first 6% of your salary that you contribute so if you put in 6% of your gross paycheck into a 401k plan they'll put in 3% right you're already at a 9% savings rate. Like that's already pretty darn good. So that's the first goal you should try to get to. If you are leaving school and you've just rented your first apartment and you've got these big debts, you may not feel like you can get there on day one. Okay, get as close as you can. This is a little controversial, but if you have low interest rate student loan debt, When I mean low is below the long-term expected return in the stock market, which is sort of seven to eight percent, let's say. If your interest rates are at four or five, maybe even six percent, I would advocate for making the minimum payments on those debts until you can get that four hundred and one k contribution up to the match. Then, when you get the next raise. As you will be getting raises periodically, even in this economy, right? Push the rest of that money into paying down the highest interest rate debt that you have as quickly as you can. And now we're getting into the assess your budget part, right? So mm-hmm. it's this managing, but but to me, the reason it's so important to start saving, even if you can't get all that free money, is because time is literally the most powerful thing that you have on your side in your 20s and 30s. And what you save and invest in your 20s and 30s is going to be. Doubling at least every 10 years. Let me say that. I, I cannot promise that. But over time, the markets have almost always had that rate of return over rolling 10, 15, 20 years of time. There are occasional blips where it doesn't quite work out, but if you wait another year or two, it does roll right back into, into, into place. So, you know, giving up on the power of that compounding is is going to be very painful later in life. And you will have to make much bigger sacrifices in your forties and fifties.
0: You know, it comes back to my introduction, this idea that a lot of mistakes are survivable if they're done while you're young and you're still kind of investing and involved. I get it, right? So there's no question free money is good. We want to contribute in tax deferred savings, especially up to the match. But, you know, I've heard it argue from many people that they feel like putting their money in a 401k is like money jail. Right. Like what if I want to use that money eventually for a down payment or there's all sorts of things on the horizon. I'm in my 20s. I don't know if I'm going to need that cash. And once I put it in money jail, I can't get it out. What do you say to those people?
1: I I say jail is there for a reason and it's to keep your money safe. Right. So this is this is this is one of my guardrails. Right. If you stick it there, you can't get it back. Now, this is why that emergency savings fund is the second thing on that list. Right. You cannot have your only savings tied up in your 401k plan because you have to have access to cash you might you know, god forbid have a really big injury have your spouse lose their job you could lose your job right so so you can't have your only cash locked away forever in in that retirement jail but once it's there it's expensive to get out now if you really need it because there's a real crisis or a true emergency you there are ways to get it there're not what I would typically recommend as a first stop. I did. I did it right. I tapped into my 401k to uh, buy a loan, which is if you're going to tap it, that's the right way to do it. But it was for not, roof, that's not right? for, that a, roof. Was we had for a, roof, a roof, right? had to for a roof, house yeah. Right after we bought the house, had it inspected. The guy was like, yep, it's fine. You should have another five years out of that. And, you know, six months later, there we were. So, you know, stuff happens.
0: The emergency fund is risk number two is not having an adequate emergency fund. Yep. I feel like I can only talk about risk number two with risk number one, because if you're a conscientious young person, right, you're saying, do I take my money, do I put it in the emergency fund, or do I take it and get my my 401k match? It's kind of a difficult situation in the way beginning, isn't it?
1: It is. And 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 I really still argue with myself as to whether I should have put emergency savings first or second. It's it's but they they're both they're they're tied um, honestly right so it was a tough one I, you ought to be if you've got the cash you should be saving up both at the same time so and and maybe you don't get the whole match just start get 1% in your form just start getting that going once you start it's the hardest step is the first step right so once you get that going and again many employers now will automatically enroll you In your 401k plan, that's another guardrail, right? If it happens automatically, you never get used to seeing it in your paycheck. That is a gift from your employer. So whatever they enroll you at, right, 1%, 2%, 3%, see if you can stick that and then push the rest of your money into the the emergency savings fund. So I don't actually advocate going for the full match until you get your whole emergency fund saved up, but start even just a little bit.
0: And what is, I mean, every every expert seems to have a different definition, but what does adequate look like? Like, when do we say, okay, the emergency fund is taken care of, let's go move to these other things?
1: It's enough to manage a, I'm going to use an oxymoron here, a reasonable crisis in your life. And not so much that you're not getting the return you need on your long-term investments, right? So it, it, there's no perfect answer here. Standard advice is three to six months. It may change as you go through your life the more discretionary spending you are doing the lower that really needs to be because let's face it if your rent is only you know ha 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 20% of your income <laughs> and you are fine you know cooking rice and beans for a little while then guess what you don't need a ton of money you cut your subscriptions you cut your dining out you know you stop traveling whatever your budget is right if you can cut to the bone think about you needing Again, three to six months of that number, if your rent and your food and your car payments and your minimum debt payments are taken up seventy to eighty percent of your money, and it may well be or for many people or even ninety percent, you've got a lot less wiggle room. And so you need to be saving a little bit more because there's not you don't have as many levers to pull to cut cut back. The other things I think about are are you in an industry that has historically or right now in this economy, been prone to more cyclicality that is does it tend to see layoffs right when things get tough is it an industry where you know finance lays people off when stuff doesn't go well so i'd say if you're in finance right you ought to maybe have a little more uh backed up right tech is now undergoing massive transformation right so again i think tech workers used to feel really comfortable about i'm always employable i suspect that's still true. Maybe not though at the same salary you've already gotten, right? So maybe that's a little larger than you might've thought you needed a couple of years ago. And then the last one is if you're gigging, if you don't have a W-2 paycheck that you can count on, you really need to have a bigger emergency savings fund because it just may take a while between gigs and you don't know what that income stream is going to be. So that's going to push you to having a little more laid away. But it's really kind of a you got to think about all of those variables when you think about how much you need. But uh, typically, I think six months, you know, people have been laid off for longer. Another, another variable is certainly, you know, coming out of 08, you saw people being out of work for a long time. Another variable is, do you have a way you think you can start earning some money, even if it's not, you know, your dream job, whether it's working retail or driving a lift, I mean, like whatever it is, like, what can you do to pull in some money? And so again, if you've got that ability to to cover some minimal expenses, then maybe your emergency fund can be a little smaller.
0: We've been talking about emergency fund for the people who worry they don't have enough. I've also heard the other end where people who have very high incomes will argue they don't need an emergency fund because they can always take a line out of line of credit out or use their credit card. Have you ever heard that that argument? I I, I certainly see the pitfalls with that. I don't know if you do, but I think they're horrifying. I mean, <laughs> you you you.
1: cash flow is king, right? And if you don't have cash flow, your debt starts snowballing. If you've got a home equity line and you, you know, those typically are floating, right? They're not fixed. So like your your interest rate payments could be very unpredictable. I think that is vastly preferable than running up credit card debt. But if you're going to be paying 20, 25% on that stuff, like that's nuts. That's going to be compounding super fast, and you definitionally won't be able to do more than make the minimum payment payments on that. So you're going to have to borrow money to make your loan payments, right? I mean, that's crazy.
0: So getting back to this idea that we don't have to be perfect at this to eventually do well and plan for retirement, you mentioned that you had to tap into your 401k to get a roof fixed. How old were you, And if you're willing to tell us, when you finally had the right amount of emergency funds saved?
1: Oh, I'd say in my late thirties, right? We were buying houses. We were, we're serial renovators, which has gotten us into some trouble in the the last, our money pit house is a 1906 Victorian, which needed a ton of work. So boy, that was just another, like, I mean, we love our house and I love living where we're living. And, you know, I think it's all kind of worked out, but like, it was a stupid financial decision really. Yeah. We were in our late thirties before we really had that set up and my husband got laid off actually in the middle of all this fortunately he'd been working for this company for 15 years and fortunately they had a very generous severance package so his income replacement from that severance lasted us all the way through when he got another job but that would have been terrifying had that not worked out that way and i think that's what kind of got us into okay actually we got to stop screwing around with this emergency saving fund thing like like that was lucky not smart
0: We are talking to Ann Lester. She's on a mission to help Americans of all walks of life to achieve a safe and secure retirement. And we are talking about the biggest financial risks of your 20s and 30s. We're going to take a short break. I'm Doc G, and this is the Earn and Invest podcast. This episode is brought to you by Range Rover Sport. Range Rover Sport leads by example with a visceral, uncompromising, and dramatic feel. This car helps you rise to the occasion. How does it do that? Range Rover Sport has powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capability by combining assertiveness with signature Range Rover refinement. This is the car that redefines sporting luxury. The new Range Rover Sport features advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification. I have a confession to make. Money has been stressful to us lately. Look, we are in the midst of a house remodel. We are sending our first kid to college, and everything I thought I knew about budgeting has been out the window. The main savior for us has been monarch money. We started using monarch money about three months ago. My wife and I have been thinking a lot about our finances, and our budget has changed, But we love Monarch Money because it's collaborative. We can both look at this together as well as share it with other people like a financial advisor if we want to. It's really aspirational. We can put information in there about, for instance, our kids' college education or about our remodel. And we can see where we need to go and where we are going. This is the next generation of personal finance apps. Monarch Money is the top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. You can create custom budgets, track progress toward financial goals, and collaborate with your partner. And now you can get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com earn. That's monarchmoney.com earn What I love about Monarch Money is it's intuitive. It's really easy to sign on and connect all your bank accounts and credit cards. As we said, it's collaborative. It's also customizable. Like we were able to build in exactly what we wanted to do with our kids' college education as well as our home remodel. This is an app that is customer focused. Really, Monarch Money is looking to make this app useful to you and me and all of us who are aspirational about our money. After trying out Monarch Money for myself, I understand why it's the top-rated personal finance app. And right now, listeners to the show will get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash earn. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash E-A-R-N for your extended 30-day free trial. We are back with Ann Lester. She is the author of Your Best Financial Life Save Smart Now for the Future You Want, which will be published by William Morrow in March of 2024. And we are talking about the five biggest financial risks of your 20s and 30s. Risk one is not contributing to your 401k or IRA. Risk two, is not having an adequate emergency fund we are ready to move to risk 3 which is being underinsured this is a personal one for me my father died when i was 7 years old and he had a life insurance policy this was in 1980 for $200,000 and i've always been really thankful he had that because my mom invested it and it ended up paying for all of our colleges and medical schools and graduate schools but looking back now, as someone who understands personal finance, I realize that was woefully underfunded. That was not enough to cover our daily expenses. My mom, luckily, was in the process of getting a job, and that's what she eventually did. Interestingly enough, there was another policy my father was supposed to get that his work forgot to buy for him, which was supposed to be for a million dollars. That's a whole nother story. But talk about being underinsured First and foremost, this is a common problem of young people. Well,
1: and I think for young people, right, again, I'm really thinking about people in their 20s and 30s, and certainly in your 20s, right, many people, possibly most, do not have to worry about families, right? So buying a life insurance policy on yourself, right, on the one hand, it's kind of cheap because you're kind of young, so the, you know there, there's a relatively low likelihood that you'll die, which is how they price these things. But you probably don't need it either. Right. So I would say life insurance is the one thing maybe not to focus on until you really have dependents. Right. Who are really or, or you have financial commitments like a house that you really want to make sure don't get disrupted by your own untimely death or your spouse's death. I'm thinking about I want to call it silly insurance because it's super important, but it's everyday life insurance. Right. So w- w- the, the insurance that you need for to cover the things in your daily life. If you've bought a house, the bank makes you buy homeowner's insurance because they're insuring the mortgage, right? So they're making sure they're covering their debt. I remember reading an article 15, 20 years ago about a town that had been wiped out by tornadoes. And this was a town that many people had inherited homes from their family. And because there was no mortgage, nobody had house insurance. So they were just wiped out. Hmm. So I think a lot of insurance that we have, typically home insurance and car insurance, we have because somebody makes us buy it, not Mm -hmm. because we think, oh, goody, I want to spend all this money on something I hope I never need. But insurance is basically making sure that should the worst happen, you've covered that sort of tail risk, as we say in finance, right? That extreme event that will wipe you out. Some people who don't have employer sponsored medical care run the risk of not having health insurance because they're young and healthy, right? I know somebody who got carjacked. This was 40 years ago in a in a rough city and got shot and had to declare bankruptcy twice because mm-hmm. they couldn't they didn't have medical insurance and they couldn't cover the bills and that ruined their financial life in their 20s and 30s, right? You don't think about that happening to you, right? Or getting hit by a car or Taking a bad fall off your bicycle, right, can 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 rack up hundreds of thousands of dollars of medical debt. So personally, I think catastrophic medical insurance is, is not adequate, but I'm older and have medical things going on. So like, I wouldn't do it. But like, I think for your 20s, at least that catastrophic coverage can help you from that worst case bankruptcy outcome. Other kinds of insurance aren't that expensive. You know, I'm thinking about renters insurance, right? Some landlords require their tenants to buy it. Others don't. I had a renter's insurance policy. Somebody told me it was a good idea. It was like, this is back in the 80s, 50 bucks a month or 50 bucks a year, 100 bucks a year. It was almost nothing. And an airline lost my suitcase coming home from Christmas vacation when I was in grad school. And this is back in 1989, $2,000 worth of stuff in that suitcase. When you add up the replacement cost of like a checked piece of luggage, with textbooks, with brand new clothes, with two pairs of shoes, with, you know, like, you know, a week's worth of clothing, it was shocking. And I didn't have to pay a dime for that because the airline payment covered my deductible on my runner's insurance, and they made me whole, and I could go replace it without running up more credit card debt. So I think that kind of insurance is is critical, right? Being underinsured for daily life. Let's say your roommate leaves a window open, your laptop's gone. Boom, right? You're out thousand bucks, you need that for work. Like you can't not replace your laptop if you're working from home. So it's it's those kinds of expenses that the cost of them may feel like I don't need that. What's going to happen to me? But when it happens to you, you're going to be super regretful. Collision insurance on your car. Back in the oh my gosh, we have to replace our roof era, I my car got totaled. We didn't have collision insurance. It was a crappy old car. It wasn't worth very much. But oh my gosh, I wished we'd paid the extra. I don't know what it was, not very much, because I had to dig deep to buy a replacement junker. If I'd had the right level of insurance, I wouldn't have, that wouldn't have, that would have been a blip. It, it's those kinds of losses that when you think about, oh my gosh, I'm paying, I don't know what it is, a thousand bucks a year in insurance, and you're insuring hundreds of thousands of dollars of catastrophic loss that will completely derail your financial plan.
0: So let's talk about risk for saving for your children before yourself. This is obviously for the older cohort, maybe not the early 20s, but as you get in your 30s, I've seen this a lot with college savings. I'm reminded I had a colleague who had put all sorts of money into his 529 plan for his kids, but he didn't have an emergency fund. And I remember him having to take the penalties to take that money out eventually because he couldn't basically afford his life. Tell us about This idea of saving for your children before yourself and how it gets in the way.
1: I think one of the greatest gifts we can give our children is an education and a debt-free education. So I am not saying that's a bad use of your money. I think it's a wonderful gift you can give your children. We were able to give that our own children that undergrad. We're not on the hook for grad school. We told them that from day one. They're on their own for that. But you can't do it at your own expense because and I am not the first person to say this, I know Susie Orman says it all the time, there's no other way to fund your own retirement except your own savings. There are lots of ways to fund an education. It may not be the fancy pants education you think Mm -hmm. your children deserve. It may not be, you know, a linear, we're done in four years, but there are lots of ways to fund an education. And I do think that, that losing sight of that and crippling your own future actually puts an enormous burden on your children that you don't want them to have. So, you know, that old saying about put your oxygen mask on first is really true when it comes to finance because you cannot help your children if you have beggared yourself to give them an education. I think about my children now, would I rather help them get through graduate school or would I rather help them with a down payment if I have the money? I I think I'd rather help them with a down payment and I want them to think about the value of the education they're getting and have some skin in the game frankly.
0: Yeah, people don't always realize like y- you 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 may pay for your kids now despite yourself, but then they're going to pay for you later when you have very little left over.
1: Or they won't and that's even worse. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, it's it's there just may not be the funds there and I think there's a real reckoning going on in our society right now about the value of education and how we consume it and pay for it that I think is a, a good conversation to be had.
0: And finally, we are to risk five buying too much house. I mean, isn't the American dream <laughs> to build wealth with your house? I mean, everyone says their house is the holder of wealth. Are we looking at it wrong? Yeah, we are. So, and I've I've done it
1: twice. So, you know, I, I, I I'm right up there in the guilty in the guilty party. Here's the challenge: you can't eat your house. <laughs> you just can't. So if you want to unlock the wealth in your house, you have to sell it or get a reverse mortgage, which is complex and not something I'm necessarily advocating, although that may be something in in people's two box at some point. So if you're going to be staying in one community for at least five years, and if you've got a down payment, and if you've got the cash flow to cover your mortgage, your insurance, and your property taxes... Plus, let's call it the House Emergency Fund, because houses require maintenance, which is another just, or I don't know anybody who's bought a house who hasn't been shocked, horrified, surprised by the ongoing maintenance costs of a house that your landlord pays when you're renting. You don't even see them. Your toilet breaks, 200 bucks a valve breaks. This is just in our house in the last year. And we just finished renovating it, right? so it's not got a hundred-year-old plumbing anymore. A valve got stuck in a shower. We had 10 people at our house over Christmas. Guess what? We have three bathrooms. We can't have one of them offline, right? So plumber comes again, another 200 bucks, right? I mean, it's just it's just constant. And it's so easy to do the math thinking about the formal cost of the house and forgetting all of the other costs. So you should probably think about it being at least 10% more. And you need to have a really honest conversation with yourself about whether you can swing that cash flow, especially if you don't think you're going to stay put for at least five years, because there are fees that you pay when you buy a house and sell a house.
0: Yeah. I mean, has renting gotten a bad name? I feel like everyone is so anti-renting. On the other hand, you know, it gives you a lot of Ability to change your plans, and you know, it, it's it's it makes life easier in some ways.
1: Uh, that's why, especially for people in their twenties and thirties, right? Until you're really ready to do the proverbial settling down thing, you know, it really does lock you down. If you're in in the young part of your career, you may be changing jobs more frequently. You may be, you know, entering and exiting romantic relationships. Like it's 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 a time of change and. You know, we didn't buy our first house until we were in our mid thirties, and you know that gave us time to save up a down payment. Um, but we also just kept moving. I mean, we were moving countries, right? We were moving all over the place. So, you know, that was great not being stuck. So, I'd, I'd say it's it's a multi multi dimensional uh, question. But I I do think renting's gotten a bad rap, and when you think about where you want to find more savings, housing is a big ticket item, mm. and you can play with location. You can play with size. You can play with the fanciness, right? Do you have a programmable thermostat or are you dialing a radiator up and down, right? I mean, they're, they're, they and you can have a, a conversation with yourself about what do you value, right? What's important to you? Is it having a 10 minute walk to work? Is it having a backyard? Is it having, you know, and, and those conversations are just as true for renting as they are for, for buying.
0: So we've been talking about the five biggest financial risks in your 20s and 30s. What we're really now talking about are people from the millennial and Gen Z generations. A lot of people complain that these generations aren't doing well because there's something wrong with them. They're not good savers. They're not as invested in their jobs. They're not basically doing the right things. Have you found this to be true? What is going on with these generations, or have they been given maybe an unfair situation?
1: I think they've been dealt a very different hand of cards than I was or you were. I also think they've gotten a bomb rap being latte sipping, avocado toast munching, you know, snowflakes. And and I, I do think, actually, if you look at the data, and I'm a huge, huge believer in data, Gen Z and millennials are saving at higher rates. Than Gen Xers or Boomers did at the same age. Now, some of that is just because of of what we touched on briefly at the beginning, which is automatic enrollment into savings plans. So, guess what? They just got swept up and into them, and it just happened to them. This is great. Like that's a beautiful thing. So, I think that's fabulous. I think there's also more understanding and knowledge—not enough, but more than I certainly had about how credit card debt works or the importance of savings. Like. Podcasts like this didn't exist. When I was in my 20s, you had to buy a subscription to the Wall Street Journal or read the newspaper if you wanted to get anything about the financial press. And it was at a very sophisticated sort of insider level. So if you were mildly interested in this stuff as a consumer, there was no real way to access any information about this. So I think, you know, the whole FinTalk craze about, you know, all of this stuff on Instagram. I mean, I'm I'm contributing to the noise too, right? Like I'm out there putting my own stuff out, but there's so much more awareness of the importance of this. So I think they've totally gotten a bum rap. I do think houses are more expensive, cars are more expensive. Rent is more expensive than it was for us. Educations are more expensive than they were for us. So all of these things literally cost more money relative to incomes, right? I'm not just talking about inflation, but relative to incomes. Some things are a lot cheaper too, like electronics. Like I got this thing called a cell phone that is more powerful than a computer that would have fit in a room when I was in college, right? So, I mean, that blows your mind too. We don't see those savings. We see the expenses. So I think I think the world is just very different. I also think that Gen Zs and Millennials have grown up in a climate that makes it much easier to worry about things. Like when I was in my elementary school years, right, the there were war. You know, we were winding down Vietnam. There was the first and second oil crisis. There were the Los Angeles riots. I mean, there was a lot of stuff going on in the world, but it didn't impinge on my daily life. The way I think that those events are now in everybody's faces again, because of social media, because of our online world that we're living in now and instant access to all information like I had to my parents had to turn the news on in the house for me to be aware of any of that. And now, if you're over the age of whatever it is seven, eight, nine, ten, whenever kids get their first smartphone, it's there. So I think that has pros and cons, right? but one of the negatives, I think, is that you're just more worried about stuff like I Kind of had this happy-go-lucky, like it's gonna work out. Why wouldn't it? Right. And I think a lot of us did, not everybody, certainly, who did not grow up in a sort of privileged household, but I think that was more of the zeitgeist. I don't think that's true anymore. So, and then and then you throw in the big existential worries that I think this generation is facing. That just I hear I hear my own kids, one of my kids saying occasionally, I don't know why I'm saving money.
0: You know, the world's gonna be underwater when I'm 70. And I'm like,
1: Yeah, mm, I don't know, man, but won't it be worse if you don't have any money?
0: Do you feel hopeful for these generations' future? I mean, when it comes a- to personal absolutely. finances?
1: Absolutely. I think they are in so much better shape than 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 I was, certainly. I mean, maybe a low bar, but I think I think there's so much more information. There's so many more tools, and there's such a better understanding of why this is hard. Again, something I go into great depth in my book that we didn't really touch on much here. Is just the why. Like, what's the behavioral wiring? We touched on it at the beginning. Like, why is this hard for us? And there's so many apps and tools. And, you know, I just signed up for Noom again because guess what? I got to lose the 20 pounds I picked up over the pandemic. And, like, you know, but, but the sophistication of that and its ability to personalize with me, right, a plan is phenomenal. So I think there are a lot more ways. On the one hand, there's a lot more bombarding us and like, you know, giving us all those triggers to spend our money. But on the other hand, there are a lot more ways also to put those guardrails up around us. So I am I am very hopeful, actually. I see a, a level of engagement and commitment to understanding and mastering personal finance that I certainly did not get from my peers. And as you mentioned, I went to Princeton. I majored in economics. I was in finance. I didn't hear that from my peers the way I hear it from almost any 20-something that I talk to today.
0: Well, Anna, I wanted to thank you for coming on the show. Admittedly, both you and I have admitted today that we made lots and lots of mistakes. But the reason to talk about these risks to mitigate during your 20s and 30s is if you do that part right, you can not only make mistakes and survive, but you can thrive. You have time on your side, and it seems to be the most important ingredient if you protect yourself. So thank you so much for talking about these five big risks to think about in your 20s and 30s. I want to end the show the way I end every episode by asking you what is up next in your life and how people can reach out to you. First and foremost, let's talk about your book, Your Best Financial Life, Save Smart Now for the Future You Want. When exactly will it be available for people?
1: It is a date that is emblazoned in my brain, March 12. You can pre-order it now if you want to on Amazon or Barnes and Noble or any online uh, bookseller of your choice. You could order it in your local bookstore. They love that, but it's going to be available on March 10, 12, And I got to say that's, that's kind of my life right now is, is building up into that launch. It's, as a first time author, it's exhilarating and it's a little nerve wracking. So uh, And terrifying. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I wasn't going to say that word on air, but yeah, I'll agree. Terrifying. It is terrifying.
0: <laughs> and if people want to know more about you or want to reach out to ask questions, what's the best way for them to do that?
1: They can reach out on my website, Ann at AnnLester.com, A N N E L E S T E R.com. I'm on social media. and My handle on everything is Save Smart W Save Smart with N. I couldn't get all those letters in. So it's Save Smart W On Instagram, on TikTok, on
0: LinkedIn, you can find me there. So again, the book is Your Best Financial Life, Save Smart Now for the Future You Want. And Lester, thank you so much for being on Earn and Invest today. Thank you so much for having me. That's a wrap. Earn and Invest is now part of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. Visit airwavemedia.com to listen and subscribe to this show as well as other fine podcasts. When I wrote the book Taking Stock, I thought it was pretty self evident the idea that maybe we're chasing money and we shouldn't, but instead we should be looking at our own unique sense of purpose, identity, and connections. The problem was we were looking at money first, and then we would get to this vaunted financial independence or net worth number and find that we didn't know what to do with ourselves because we had never contemplated the deeper, more important things. So my answer was, let's concentrate on purpose, identity, and connections first. It never occurred to me the backlash I would get when I went out to promote this book and people read Taking Stock And the first thing they would say to me is, stop telling me to find my purpose. I don't know what my purpose is, and it's making me anxious. I've tried and tried, but I don't know what to do. This was an utter, utter surprise, and it made me actually go to the literature and look it up. Well, how important is purpose? It turns out it's very important. Scientific studies show that having a sense of purpose in life increases your longevity, your health, and your happiness. Hands down, multiple studies. On the other hand, other studies show that 91% of people at some point in their life have something called purpose anxiety. Searching for purpose makes them depressed and anxious and want to quit. This is the paradox. It's a paradox that intrigued me so much that I eventually wrote a book called The Purpose Code. It will be released in January of 2025 through Herman House Press, which is part of Pan Macmillan. And I wrote this book just to address these issues. I also started the Wealth with Purpose Mastermind and did one-on-one meetings with each of the members... And I found that people struggle basically with three things. One is, I have no idea what my purpose is. How do I define it? That's one. Number two, I'm working in a job currently that isn't fulfilling me. How do I bring purpose into my job, especially now as I have more money? How do I transform into the life I want to live? And three, what does enough look like? What is enough money so that I can start doing the things I want to do? What is enough life? Three big topics, and I realized that through my work as a hospice doctor, being a podcaster, writing, taking stock, and then the Purpose Code, as well as running the Wealth With Purpose Mastermind, that I have a lot to say about these things, and I have a deeper understanding of what drives people, what helps them find purpose, that healthy kind of purpose, not the anxiety-causing purpose, and how to move forward. Because of that, I've decided to start the Path to Purpose Coaching Program. This is a chance for all of you to sit down and dedicate some time to thinking specifically about what does purpose look like in your life and how are you going to then build the life around that sense of purpose that brings happiness, contentment. How are you going to use the money you've worked so hard to save and invest? How are you going to use that money to live a better life? the Path to Purpose coaching program. The easiest way if you want to become part of this program is to go to com slash coaching. That's earnandinvest.com slash coaching. I'll be doing two types of programs. One is the one I suggest, which is a five pack. That is five one hour sessions, one a week in which we start with looking at purpose, your career, maybe what enough looks like to you and working through those five sessions to come to the end in a place where you feel that you can connect with what the next steps are. In other words, where you can feel like if you were stuck, you've now become unstuck. That is one way to participate in path-to-purpose coaching. The other way is one-off consulting. If you want to just schedule one hour with me, I can do that too. This is a chance for you to just talk through something that's giving you difficulty in the moment and see if we can resolve it right then and there, or at least give you steps to move forward. I'm really excited about this coaching practice. I'm excited to continue these conversations that I've been having for the last few years, but bring them to each of you as needed, especially if you feel like you're at a point of crisis where you don't know how to move forward. That's Path to Purpose Coaching. The easiest way to learn more is to go to earnandinvest.com slash coaching. Again, that's earnandinvest.com slash coaching. Okay, I keep things running just for a few minutes to catch our after show, what we chat about. So admittedly, as you and I talked about, there's no way I could cover everything in the book. There's a lot of great information there. But is there anything specifically that we didn't talk about or anything you feel like, boy, I really wish we could touch on this point?
1: You know, I think the one other concept that I touch on near the end of the book, and I I do realize that many people get through the beginning of the book and not an end of a book and so you try to front load everything you know at the beginning Um, is this concept of stuff is going to go wrong and we talked about that right you can make mistakes and recover but the other thing that I think is really important is having a plan means that you don't freak out when the bad thing happens and it may still be bad like it's not going to not be bad but you're going to handle it better and you're going to not make decisions from an emotionally vulnerable place. And, and you know, there's a lot of brain science that shows us that when we are under stress, we get stupid. And so having a plan just lets you keep the stress level under control and gives you a little more headspace to make better decisions. And I think that's the, the one other thing that I think, you know, again, it's really hard to understand that when you're in your 20s because you're living like not in that world of self-actualization. And I know myself, right? You're in this like, whoa. Uh, world. But I do think that's one other thing I I, I hope people can like, even if you don't believe it, try it because it'll work.
0: Yeah, I'm definitely, you know, I realize the older I get and the more I understand personal finance, the more I realize how important risk mitigation is. Yeah, Right. And so I think we spend a huge amount of time talking about accumulation. And hopefully if you get through that unscathed, then you get old enough where you're like, okay, I kind of understand the accumulation part. Now I have to start thinking about risk. Like what's going to knock There's a whole
1: other podcast we can do on that one because the last thing I did at JP Morgan before I left was try to build a...
0: But it's hard to teach young people to to integrate risk mitigation in at the beginning um, because all those same things that can knock you off after you're wealthy... Can also knock you off when you're building that 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 wealth, and
1: well, and then you're in a hole. Like, forget yeah. destroying wealth. You're like in you're uh, underground. And then you have the reverse lot. compounding yeah, or the negative yeah.
0: compounding. Which, yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. Which um, very painful. So where are you? So you you used to work for JP Morgan, but mm-hmm. do not currently. Is that correct? Correct. I so what retired. do you professionally mostly do? Are you you retired? You Which, which I, obviously is not retired because you're writing no. a book and doing all sorts of other things. Yeah, but.
1: no, I'm on two corporate boards. I'm on the board of a Swiss private equity company, a publicly traded Swiss private equity company. And I'm on the board of a fintech that is building the plumbing that goes inside of 401k record keepers. Got it. And I think about my personal portfolio as being helping people save, which is the book. Helping small and mid-sized companies get better and more efficient, cheaper, access to 401k plans because one third of Americans work for companies who don't offer plans because they're expensive. And then the other leg of the stool is how do you help those 401k plans generate better returns? And that's yeah. through investing in the good stuff.
0: Yeah. another you, That's the other great thing about if you get your money right in your 20s and 30s, you get to have this kind of middle-aged second life where you then can just kind of jo- go after the joy of what, you know, what Absolutely. what you really like. I've, I've been lucky enough and I accumulated enough as a physician that it's allowed me to do that at this stage of my life. And yep. um, it really is a particular joy that I think young people don't realize how that could or could not feel when they get to that age, Like right? This idea Absolutely. of our cohorts are like struggling and maybe working at jobs that they either don't love or at least are bored with, Because you have to pay the bills, whereas if you kind of do the twenties and thirties right, you get to this point where you can make a lot of more personal decisions as you get, you know, into your forties and fifties and sixties. Yeah.
1: You have choices, and choices are good.
0: Tech moves fast. So keep pace with the Daily Crunch podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes every day, this podcast will give you a quick overview on everything you need and should know about startups, new tech, regulations, and more. Listen to TechCrunch Daily Crunch now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's TechCrunch Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts.